Hey everyone, it's Peg Mulqueen, and what you've just listened to is Saraswati Joyce's chant at the start of a very special download of a lead primary class, featuring teachers like Eddie Stern, Harmony Slater, David Robson, Laruga Glazer, David Kyle, and many others, all of which join their voices and effort to help reunite the children and families who've been separated at the U.S. border. This class is available by donation only. And so if you'd like to download your copy, I mean, who wouldn't, just visit ashtangadispatch.com backslash rise up. And now on to today's episode. A few weeks ago, Megan, Indy, and I took a drive down to the yoga workshop in Boulder, Colorado, where we sat down with Ty Landrum, Richard Freeman, and Mary Taylor, each separately for three brand new, amazing episodes of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast. The yoga workshop was founded by Richard and Mary in the late 80s and is now run by Ty. But given all three's teaching schedule, it's pretty rare to find them all in town at the same time. So call it luck if you want, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to call it patience because the truth is Mary and I have been trying to find a time to sit down for over two years now. It just goes to show you some experiences are worth the wait. In today's episode, we begin with Ty and his daughter in the beginning, though she got bored with us pretty quick and decided to go with Jenny, their babysitter, to the pool instead. Still, I was really glad she joined us for a little while. It's been a few years since I'd seen her in Mysore, toddling around Sherrod's weekly conference. Barely walking then, she's quite the conversationalist now. And also a big sister, as Ty and his wife now have a new baby as well. Anyway, I usually do some research before interviewing someone, but in Ty's case, I didn't have to. Because two weeks before this interview, a student and follower of the dispatch from Columbus, Ohio, emailed me hoping that I'd invite Ty on the show. Well, not only did I share the good news that Ty was coming on, but I asked him what questions he wanted me to ask most. Let's just say the student did his homework and emailed me back some really great questions. One of which was about that unique way that Ty sort of rolls his spine into upward dog. Maybe you've seen it on his Instagram account. So if you haven't seen it, you should, because it really does mean more of a visual. So if you go to the Ashtanga Dispatch IGTV page on Instagram, you can actually watch Ty's tutorial with me and my uh, comical attempts at it. Though I'll have you know, I am still working on it, and since then, I have gotten better. (laughs) But listen, if there's ever a teacher that you want to suggest for the podcast, go ahead and visit ashtangadispatch.com and drop me a line. You never know. Next time, it could be your questions I ask. And now, on to today's episode with teacher, philosopher, and a really great dad, Ty Landrum. Do you want another Band-Aid? No. No? No. Well, why are they... She put the, she, she's way into Band-Aids. She puts them all over us and will be like, <laughs> how did I get this Band-Aid? Are you into Band-Aids? 
So you're pretty good at this, juggling the whole dad thing and... No choice. <laughs> I have no choice. I think last time I saw you in Mysore, you, you were there. Yes. Were you there? But you now you have a new baby. Mm-hmm. Was, she pre- was your wife pregnant then? Were you guys expecting? No, not yet. Not yet? Yeah, not yet. Oh, wow. Oh, I guess it's been a while, huh? Yeah. It's been about a year and a half? Is that right? Yes. Did I get that right? That's right. How was it bringing, how was it being there as a family? Um, In Mysore, let was, me clarify. Daddy? Yeah? I, I don't, I can't hear it. <laughs> You'll be able to hear it later. Yeah, you, you don't hear it now. She's recording us and then we can listen to it later. Okay? So, um, it was... I mean, it was like this whole mental journey when we first got there. Um, it was really, it was really difficult for us um, because, um, you know, the place just suddenly appeared fraught with dangers of the kind that we really didn't expect. <laughs> totally. And we kind of we anti- it, it was more than we anticipated, um, and. So, uh, yeah, we had a hard time settling into it, but we did, of course, eventually, because, you know, it's like we didn't really have a choice. So we eventually, like, surrendered to it and decided that it was going to be fine no matter what happened, and then we had a blast. It was great. How long were you there? We were there for two months. You were there. It was That was yeah. your second trip there? Uh-huh. So it's interesting. I told you before I came here that I got an email from a student in Columbus, Ohio, Uh who said to me, please, please, will you interview Ty Landrum? He has changed my practice. And, you know, he was just your biggest fan. And so I wrote him back and I said, well, we are on our way to Boulder right now. And I'm going to meet with him in two days. And so I asked him to send me his questions. And one of them was about the route that you went to teach yoga. Uh And it's like starting way back. Uh For example, you would make my mom really happy because you actually completed your PhD Uh at UVA, (laughs) whereas I dropped out. Um, But you have a PhD in philosophy Mm -hmm. from UVA. Mm -hmm. How does one go from that <laughs> to well, this um, I was teaching I, 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 I was teaching yoga for maybe the second half of my um, graduate school career and um, I was I started teaching yoga daily I started first I started assisting Jennifer Elliott at Ashtanga Yoga Charlottesville <laughs> in the morning Mysore program. So I would do that and um, I started spending more and more time at the studio. Like I was usually in the studio from like six to 11. <laughs> and then As it takes I, over your life. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> and then I would go to graduate school and you know, I mean, in graduate school responsibilities are, I mean, a lot of the weight, a lot of the burden of graduate school is self-imposed. And I definitely impose that on myself, like everyone does. I mean, it's a t- it's a super high pressure, high stress, totally kind of environment. Um, 
but I was so in love with the yoga and so in love with what it was doing to my mind and um, the way that it was shifting my perspective on what I was studying. Mm -hmm. And um, I also so loved the way that uh, I was connecting with people in the yoga studio when I was assisting and then later when I started teaching. Um, and it was such a stark difference to the way that I was relating to people in the classroom teaching philosophy. Because I would teach philosophy in the afternoons at UVA. Um, and then somewhere in there I was also writing a dissertation. Yeah, and, that's where I was uh, getting to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I managed. I mean, I, I, I managed. It just got up really, really early. But, um, yeah, so so um, I was just madly in love with, with Ashtanga Yoga, really, from the very beginning. And the more I did it, the more fascinated with it I became. And the more it sort of started, like, integrating into what I was interested in already in philosophy, which was I was studying like theories of human development in Western figures, like specifically in Plato. Daddy, um, where was the first the top? The top? Here. Um, specifically in Plato and uh, in, 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 you know, philosophers uh, in the ancient world who were influenced by Plato and then later in Rousseau and in Kant and so and, and yoga of course has uh, a, a whole different set of uh, conceptions of human development and um, so it was fascinating to, to compare them but then also to sort of feel the way that the, that the practice uh, was sort of you know, giving me like an experiential understanding of these different theories. And in fact, um, the yoga practice helped me to better uh, feel into and start to understand uh, the theories of human development from the ancient world, specifically in Plato, that were really based on contemplative practice, but on a set of contemplative practices that have been lost. We don't know what Dad. kind of contemplative practices. I want to go home. You want to go home? Okay, I'll text Jenny and tell her to come get you. Um, we don't really know what kind of contemplative practices they were doing in Plato's academy, but we know that they were doing something and that it was meditative and that it had a lot to do with silence, and that it, but that it also had a lot to do with, um, with philosophical thought and with the, with the refinement of what in yoga terminology is called the refinement of your vikalpas. The, the, I'm going to go test one more today with Jenny. <laughs> I tell you what, this is what Megan used to do all the time. When, when I would go into yoga speak, she'd just want to go home. And look at her now. She's always here. <laughs> now she doesn't want to leave. <laughs> Crazy. This is what your future looks like. Right here. <laughs> Jenny's on her way. Okay, thank you. Okay. Jenny's on her way. Jenny's on her way. Yay, Jenny's on her way. Alright, hold up your Okay, my muse is gone. Um, oh my gosh. So, going back, Yeah. you said something really interesting about it's the experiential part of the philosophy. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, well, philosophy can 
be a little heady. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. My husband has a PhD in philosophy as well. Mm. And it's it can just be a lot up here yeah, in yeah, the head. Absolutely. But the yoga is a philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I love how you just described it, bringing it into your body, into experience, mm-hmm. into now, you know, mm-hmm. instead of right. just a lot of thought. Right. Can you give an, another example? An example? Yeah. Well, I mean... Um, you know the the philosophies that you, that come out of the yoga tradition are meant to be not just understood by the intellect, but they're meant to sort of you know organize our whole emotional and perceptual bearing toward the world and um, uh, our whole to sort of reorient our whole you know our whole existential sense of ourselves and our sense of connection with other beings. And so the, the, the practices help us to bring these ideas, you know, to, to bring that so that they settle deep into our bones and then we start to experience ourselves in the world differently. Uh-huh. And, you know, in the ancient world, the, the, I mean, in the ancient Greek world, it was the same. And so there were, there were, there was, there were contemplative practices that were essential to uh, philosophy as it was understood by Socrates, by Plato. And, um, but as I was saying, we don't really know what these practices are because they were, they were, they're lost in time. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Plato and, and Patanjali were contemporaries more or less. And so these, the, the practices may have been, you know, quite similar just as the ideas are really quite similar um, at bottom. Um, and so when I started doing yoga, um, I felt like the ideas that I was, uh, attracted to on the plane of the intellect, the ideas in Plato, in his writing that I was attracted to started, I started to, they started to settle deeper in, and I found that really exciting, that my, 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 my sense of the world started shifting. And it was shifting in a way that was aligning more with those ideas and even helping me to better understand them. And uh, that was really exciting. That is, that, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Is that kind of what attracted you to Richard? Yes. And Mar- yeah, I figured, <laughs> right? Because you moved from Charlottesville. Of course, you're here in Boulder. Mm-hmm. And now you run the yoga workshop. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. but take me back to you. In, in, you know your introduction to Richard and what, how that, how that all came about in Mary. Okay, so my my first Ashtanga teacher, Jennifer Elliott, who runs Ashtanga Yoga of Charlottesville, she used to live in Boulder back in the, I guess it was the mid to late '80s, and so she learned Ashtanga from Richard back then, like when he was still teaching in his bedroom. So this was, <laughs> this was back before I the, had no idea. So the yoga workshop opened in 1988. So it's 30 years old now. Um, but before that, Richard was teaching, I mean, first he was teaching Iyengar style yoga and then 
after he met Patabi Joyce, he started teaching Ashtanga Vinyasa out of his bedroom. And there's still people around here who practice with us regularly at the yoga workshop. Who I was going to say in your bedroom. I didn't know. There are still people around here who started in that same way with him. Wow. Back then. So, anyways, from the beginning, he was always this, this, um, the, you know, this this sort of fascinating figure for me. Um, and uh, I was learning, I mean, the, this, this, my introduction to Ashtanga then was very much sort of in this, in this lineage. And so I always wanted to meet Richard. And, um, you know, when I uh, listened to his audio recordings and, and read his books and, um, and, and really more than anything, when I watched those old Yoga Works videos and saw Richard Freeman practicing Ashtanga Vinyasa and this was probably, I mean, I was, this was like three months into doing yoga for me. Um, somebody, you know, told me about these videos, so I went on YouTube and watched, and it was such a revelation to see someone embodying the practice like that. Um, I remember thinking, and I didn't even know which one was Richard at the time. But I remember just being fascinated by this one person and the way that he was moving and the way that, and I said, I want to feel that. I want to feel what he's feeling. And, and like, I want to feel my body like that and, and like, you know, have whatever kind of experience of the world he's having by being in that state of consciousness. And, um, nice. That's great, baby. Have fun. Um, There's so many different directions I want to go from there. Just the way you you moved your body. Um, I'm going back to the students' questions. He had two of them that kind of segue from this one subject. Uh -huh. One, so I'm going to come back to the way that movement that you talked about. I want yeah. to feel that. I want to... Yeah. Um, going to you being drawn to Richard, one of the things he asked... Uh, was that you chose a different route to teaching uh -huh. than the one that I think is often put out there and that's the directly, I mean, we, I met you in Mysore a few years ago, uh -huh. uh, but you know, most of your teaching career has been spent under mentorship right. with Richard and Mary and not right. the... Yeah. I practice for so many years. I go to Mysore for three years. I get my... Right, right, right. Yeah. Talk um, about that a bit. I mean, I, so I started, I think, I mean, from really from the first week that I, I tried Ashtanga, I just, I really, um, it really drew me in. I was passionate about it from the beginning, and I became a regular fixture at the yoga studio in Charlottesville. Um... I mean, I was there morning and afternoon, seven days a week. <laughs> so they didn't really know what else to do with me, so they asked me to start helping teach classes after maybe, I think it was probably three years. So basically when Richard says yoga ruins your life, basically yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. you. Well, it, yeah, and it, and it um, yeah, absolutely. I mean... In a good way, he's smiling. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it... You know, it, it saved me in a way. I mean, I my original impressions of yoga were um, 
I was not fast. I, I mean, my, my, my impression of yoga f before I actually tried it was really just formed by passing, you know, yoga studios on the, on the street in Seattle. And because I lived in Seattle before I, I moved to uh, Virginia to go to graduate school. So I'd see like a lot of yoga studios in Seattle and see the people who are coming out of it. And it just, it never, I never felt like it had anything to do with me. It never called me. It didn't look like it had any particular depth to it. I just saw it as a fitness craze. And um, when, I, when, I, when I came to Virginia, um, you know, a close friend of mine was, uh, who, who's, who's from Charlottesville, um, he recommended that I, you know, go and check out this yoga studio. And I'm like, hmm. I'll give it a try. Okay, so I went and uh, and I and it was just completely uh, outside of my expectations. I mean, it was just something entirely different than I thought it would be. It was so raw and so unreasonable. <laughs> unreasonable. <laughs> yeah, like I just remember. I mean, the, my first yoga class ever was uh, a lead primary class, and I just I couldn't believe that. She was asking someone who just walked off the street to do the things that she was asking me to do. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was going to ask so. you to define unreasonable, and then you said primary series, and then you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I was okay with that. So, um, but I, I felt the way that it was, I mean, from the very first day, I, I felt this sense of, of release, of catharsis, and I had a lot of unprocessed grief from the death of uh, my best friend about 10 years earlier that I really didn't have the tools to deal with at the time. So I, I was carrying that with me and it was really like, it was the source of a lot of darkness in my life. And there was some part of me that knew that and yet I didn't, I, you know, again, I just didn't have any tools for processing it. And then when I walked into this yoga class, it was like, all of this grief came up and I felt this weight in my heart like I had a cinder block lodged in my chest and it was so painful. I mean, the beginning of my yoga journey was so painful. It did not, it did not feel good for a very, it took a really long time, but I knew, you know, from the very beginning that like, wow, this is, this is really, really good for me. Like this can, I can dispel this darkness by doing this. Something told me that, I just knew that. And so I, I did it every single day and I, I never took a break, I never recoiled, um, you know, still to this day. Once I, I started practicing daily Mysore, maybe, um, I think it was about three months after I start like my first yoga class, um, David Garig came and taught a, a weekend intensive and it just really like lit the fire for me. And that the very next month, that Monday, I started daily Mysore practice, and I never have taken a break since then. And that was like 13 years ago. Megan and I were talking about what you just said, that when you're young, you know, I was saying when I was younger, things that I processed going through things were much more difficult. I didn't have the tools. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a way of processing. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. young people aren't generally given. No. We're not taught that. We're not given that. We were talking yeah. about a lot of difficulties that you encounter as a young person that you just don't have the tools to process. And right. so sometimes that, that gets stuck yeah. or 
or comes out or we just don't know what to do with it so we kind of shove it down yeah um yeah but that the yoga pra- we were and talking exactly too, about we, we go into our d- adult lives like that totally but that it's nice uh, her as a young person in this practice she has more of the tools yeah we were just talking about like the differences in the way we handled things at the same age mm-hmm. and the value and you just said that really clearly that the you could feel it you might not be able to explain it yeah but you could feel that mm-hmm. moving through and that that was important yeah yeah it's a really good way to put it so yeah and then you know so so then i saw these videos of, of richard and you know i i like it somehow made sense already with what i was feeling from from practicing and then so i, I started like looking into his media and and like you know listening to yoga matrix and um and just reading anything that I could get my hands on that he wrote or, or whatever. And, um, and so then I was just deeply intrigued, you know, I was also immersed in philosophy and that was my, that was my life and that's what I was doing with my life. So I didn't really, um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually meet Richard in person until 2012, summer of 2012. Uh, I came here to Boulder and, um, I ended up in the month-long intensive, and um, which is also where I met my wife. No kidding. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, I just immediately connected with his, like, you know, deeply philosophical, contemplative approach, and also just with his 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 vibration, his spirit, his I wish people could see you right now. Like (laughs) you're moving it through you right now. (laughs) But that's what drove you. And and with Mary too, with Mary too, you know, just as much. And, and I, I really felt, I mean, I was kind of, um, I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1975. I grew up in South Florida, you know, surfing and skating and kind of been immersed in this sort of punk rock attitude you know, throughout my, my early life. And so when I first came into yoga, the part of it that I couldn't stand was the sort of like all the reverence and the bowing and the, the, the whole student guru thing. I just found, you know, I was totally repulsed by it, you know? And so I, I really didn't want anything to do with that kind of dynamic. And I mean, my, my attitudes have shifted now, you know what I mean? But I never wanted to have a guru. That seemed to me like an unhealthy power dynamic. And when I met Richard, I mean, one of Richard's main teachings is like, you know, it's not even, I don't want to say it's one of his teachings because it's not even that he makes it so explicit, but one of the things that he does as a teacher is he keeps deflecting people's attempts to latch onto him and call him a guru. So the more you try to ask Richard what you should do, the more he like distances himself or the more he like confuses you with his answer. <laughs> you know? So like the worst thing you can do with Richard is be like, what should I do? Like what should I practice? Or like, you know, should I like how exactly should I do this pose? Should I feel this or this? Or like how many times a week should I do primary series? You know? He'll just Tell you a story. (laughs) Yeah, he'll tell you a story that will, you know, spin you out if you ask him a question like that. You know, because he doesn't, he's he's deflecting your attempts to, like, 
latch on to him and think that there's some kind of formula to this whole endeavor that's gonna like enlighten you if you do the right sequence of postures or like do primary series just the right amount of times per week or something or whatever it might be and um and he's always encouraging uh all of us to you know to to try thing to experience the yoga from different perspectives to like study with other teachers um you know experiment with different styles understand how wide and diverse yoga is see it as as one among many, many modes of contemplative practice that, you know, is, is sort of coming out of, you know, a current of human understanding rather than one particular, you know, tradition from South India or whatever. And that, and that gives you a more comprehensive perspective then of what this one particular tradition that we're so devoted to is all about. You know, it helps us understand it better and see it for what it is so that we can use it more intelligently to, like, finesse insight from our experience. And so... Um, that sounds quite traditional to me. Like that. It, yeah, yeah, very much. The question much. I think that it came is very, about very was much. why didn't I kind of go the traditional route? And and I think yeah, that was much. even the words that were used, and yeah, I yeah, couldn't yeah. quite use that one. But what you just said—that is. I agree the with you. I think I've it? been extremely blessed to you know in these very unlikely circumstances of you know contemporary yoga to have a very traditional path of you know meeting in a very organic way uh, a master and uh, you know sort of falling in love with with his whole way of seeing the yoga and just wanting to wanting to embody that myself like the really remarkable for me, the really remarkable thing about meeting Richard was that I think he's the first person that I ever met in my life where I thought, I want to see the world through his eyes. I want to feel like that. I want that kind of compassion flowing out of my heart. I want, I want to feel that. And so, you know, it, it gave me something to try and to really just want to engage with. It's visceral, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's super visceral. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then in that moment, it was like, this is my teacher. I found a teacher. It's beyond like, thought. This is, this is what it's like. You felt yeah, it. Totally. So. Your Instagram, have to like go into this, <laughs> brings together this <laughs> wonderful blend of your backgrounds, mm. that embodiment mm. with the philosophy. Mm-hmm. there seems to be a really strong feminine energy uh-huh. that runs through it as well, through your writing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Can you expand upon, because it had to be, I mean, it's, it's throughout your blogs. Uh-huh. Beautiful, you're a beautiful writer. Thank you. I mean, the Instagram is a snapshot into it, but I would encourage anybody listening to actually go then to your blog and, and read um, longer writings. But the Instagram is a good taste of it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean the fem- yeah. I mean, this is something that's fascinated me about yoga from the very beginning. I don't remember when 
when the beginning was, but this idea of, of hatha yoga as a balancing of opposing energies. And then th this other idea that the, that the, that these two opposing energies, which aren't really just two energies, they're, they're like two big, vast categories of energies of, of different kinds. Uh, and then there's this idea that they can be uh, signified uh, by the principles of the masculine and feminine. You know, and, and so this is, a, this is a tantric idea, and it's an idea that is, um, however, as old as Sankhya philosophy, which is kind of incalculably old. Um, and in Sankhya philosophy, the, the, um, Keep going. the feminine principle was uh, associated with prakriti, or nature, so it's the principle of creativity that manifests as phenomenal reality. And then Purusha, uh, which means just that this is the Sanskrit word for person, and that that is the, the the principle of pure consciousness, whatever that is, right? And mostly it's defined negatively in this tradition, like well, pure consciousness is consciousness that doesn't have any contents to it. Like, well, what is that? Because consciousness isn't consciousness always of something. What would it be to have consciousness? I mean, even consciousness of nothing is a particular kind of idea in your head. If you think about what consciousness of nothing is, you just try to imagine nothing. This is, where, whatever philosoph you're imagining, this is where philosophy lost me. <laughs> whatever you're imagining is just another pranic formation. You know, it's another symbol or another image in your head. Um, so anyways, in the... In, in later uh, tantric philosophy, in the, in the in, you know, like, for example, from the um, like late 1100s to the early 1200s, there's a philosopher named Abhinavagupta uh, who lived in Kashmir, who sort of um, who, who sort of brought to a culmination uh, many different lines of thinking that came out of these really old, diverse tantric tradition that eventually then informed hatha yoga um, and he sort of repositioned these masculine and feminine principles so that they were no longer ordered uh, in a hierarchy where the masculine principle is what we are essentially and what we're trying to overcome is the feminine principle so that we can realize our nature as pure consciousness, right? The newer idea was, no, the very highest principle of reality, which is the highest form of consciousness that one can reach, or if you like, the deepest layer of the body that you can experience yourself as being, is uh, consciousness that's pulsating with creative potential. And so it's not static, it's not immutable, it pulsates with life, yeah? And th that, the pulsation, that spanda, creates the space of consciousness. And so these two things are inseparable, consciousness and the creative, the, the creative principle. And they're gendered there too, as Shiva and Shakti. But the idea of, of Shiva as pure consciousness is a, is, um, a derivative from that deepest layer rather than something that is more fundamental than it. So pure consciousness, uh, as thought of uh, in the Sankhya philosophy, uh, becomes no longer the most fundamental principle of reality or no longer 
the absolute ground of being are no longer the deepest level of your consciousness, but it's what they just call the void. It's sort of the emptiness into which all of your experiences and sensory impressions dissolve. And then they say there's a higher consciousness beyond that that is this that's pulsating with, with the feminine divine. Yeah? And so the yoga is about trying to uh, trying to give us access to that form of consciousness because that form of consciousness is the sort of ground of being that we feel ourselves alienated from in ordinary experience. We feel, I mean, we kind of, we're coming to, we come into the world, we start feeling into our bodies, we feel the sense of separation and isolation, a sense of estrangement from the source, you know, a sense of estrangement from the feminine ground of being because you know, if you like, you could tell you could tell a story about you could sort of psychologize the story if you like that. You know, we we're, we sort of come out of the womb, which is this where we're sort of floating in the primordial waters and we have no sense of separation between ourselves and other beings. And then we're pushed out into the light of the world and suddenly we find ourselves in these in these porous but somewhat enclosed bodies and we have to reach beyond ourselves for our basic nourishment and support you know so we cling to the outside of the mother's body which is like the womb turned inside out but now we have to contend with space and with distance and and so we're always trying to sort of you know reconnect to that to that 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 feminine ground of being and yoga is allowing us to overcome our sense of estrangement by reconnecting us to that ground of being in our own consciousness. I love how we began talking about the headiness, the up here of, of a lot of philosophy and how you talked about the yoga bringing you into your body and yeah. you're, you're kind of pointing downward that grounding and the way you're connecting I mean, I think even with Earth, we call it Mother Earth. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a very mm -hmm. feminine source mm -hmm. that we come from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And then as you do all your hands, we, we almost have to at the end of this, because one of the questions is about the way you move. Mm -hmm. And as you speak, you're moving. And it's pretty visceral, it's coming out. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. the way you practice or the way you teach is also coming from that same rooted place but flowing through does that does that yeah, sound absolutely. about right yeah i mean because they, there's there are two movements here in this practice you know there's 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 the there's the movement in yeah. and so there's the movement through the different layers of consciousness you know past the physical body and through the the realm of of thought and perception and then through the pranic body and then through the void into this space of consciousness pulsating with life and then there's the movement back out where the idea is that the the the, the tantric adept can 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 feel these pulsations of raw creative energy coming up through the void taking pranic expression before they even turn into thought or emotion and then crystallizing into thought or emotion that's then felt in the physical body as tension pattern and as sensation and as you know, as the skin actually tingling or 
you know, as movement in the physical world, and that gives oneself a sense of continuity between between inner and outer. And so what we're doing in the in the in the vinyasa practice is, you know, trying to, you know, draw those energies up, you know, from their deepest source and feel them taking expression through the body without without sort of grasping at them or recoiling from them, you know, with thought constructions, which prevents us then from feeling them as they really are, which are just sort of, you know, spontaneous emanations of the, of the creative power. So that's, I think, what really fascinates, that what you're talking about, that um, I feel like in Ashtanga, in particular, more so than any other practice, even Iyengar, we can become a little mechanical, stiff, rigid. Sure. Um, I yeah. remember David Greig said this to me. I don't me. think we become that way. We just are that way. Okay, maybe that <laughs> We start that way. And then the practice is either working or it's not working so much. I remember <laughs> David Greig said to me one time in practice, he goes, Peg, you, you execute it so well. And I said, thank you. And he did not mean that as a compliment. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's this, right? I mean, it's like, it's hard to learn this, but there's this moment where you realize, maybe that was the moment for you, where you realize that it's not about the external performance. It's about, it's about like letting the, letting these, you know, these energies come up and then move through your pranic body and then take expression outward. And so you have to continually, like, be it's it's a continual movement like even when you're in a posture it's not static because the the breath is still the breath is still cycling and moving through you and so you have to allow the spine to be supple enough as you're in the form so that the breath keeps flowing in a continuous loop and that's how you maintain that flow of experience that we're talking about whereas if you if you get static and you have in your idea some idea of you know, perfect alignment. If you have in your mind some idea of perfect alignment or like how it's supposed to look from the outside, then you just bear down in that and you ossify. And maybe it's beautiful. Maybe if you took a picture from the outside, it would be symmetrically, you know, impeccable or something, but it could be, you could be just completely ruining the experience by rigidifying around that idea of what the form's supposed to look like. Well, and it's it, a totally human error, right? I mean, like, <laughs> well, it does seem like the whole theme here has been a little bit of that. Like, I came out asking you the question of the traditional route that, uh -huh. you know, but yet that is tradition the way you went, not the very rigid line of point A to point B to point C sure. to even the way you move. And even the way philosophy is... I mean, not many people talk about embodying a philosophy. Mm -hmm. Certainly not Plato. I mean, I've never heard of anybody except for you at this moment. <laughs> uh -huh. um, kind of speaking to that does make me really want to yeah, experience. Well, there, a different, there was a different language for it, but in Plato, I mean, there's, there, there's, there's this idea, like in the symposium, for example, of love being the vehicle for a certain ascension of, of spirit. And so, I mean, this is it's just a reformulation of the tantric idea. I mean, it's, it's just like that. And that at the, at the very highest level, one comes into contact with uh, a mode of consciousness in which, you know, it's the idea is that one touches the formless, the formless form 
of beauty. And then that radiates back out through one's spirit and one begins to then embody true human understanding and true human excellence. Whereas everything prior to that is just a simulacrum, just an emulation. Right? So it's, it's absolutely, I mean, that's Plato's ethics because it's about embodying uh, a consciousness that puts one in immediate touch. And he, the touch is the sense that, just like in Tantra, touch is the most fundamental sense in Plato as well. That one touches the form of good. One doesn't see it. One touches it. Oh, and it's formless, actually. So this idea that, I mean, even though it's called, you know, the form of the good or the form of, the form of beauty, the Greek word is real. I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a perversion of the translation that, um, you know, the Greek, the Greek word is eidos, which is, you know, a cognate of the word idea, right? It's kind of like, well, what else do you call it? Um, but it doesn't actually have form. He says it's colorless, it's dimensionless. It doesn't have shape, you know? But it's a mode of consciousness that one reaches at the very pinnacle of, of human development or at the very pinnacle of contemplative practice. Because human development is... I mean, the vehicle for this ascension is love, but love that is, uh, th that is supported by contemplative life. You wrote intimate, something about intimacy was the one way to absolve the ego. Mm. Did you write that? Is that... Something like that. I probably really paraphrased <laughs> badly. Um, <laughs> it was, oh, I can't find my notes. Well, I mean, I probably said something like that, that intimate, intimacy with the feminine principle dissolves the ego. It was um, something to do, and I can't find it now. Because, I mean, I mean it's just this basic idea that if, you, if you're able to access that most fundamental form of consciousness where you can feel these creative forces prior to them taking form as thought, as emotion, even as sensation, where you can feel the creative force moving upward from the depths of your consciousness and then, and then starting to take form. And then, you know, everything depends on what happens next, right? Do you, if you can hold the space of openness where you don't try to label what's happening, but you simply give it space, then it will overwhelm you. It will overwhelm your ideas about what you're experiencing in the present moment, about who you are, right? Because the creative force will just spills out beyond the boundaries of all of your projections about what's happening in the moment. And so that's what dissolves the ego, and that can, be, that can be happening. I mean, the idea is that for the tantric adept, that's happening in every moment all over again. Because the ego is constantly being recreated as well. So it's not like there's this thing, the ego, and then it's demolished, and then you float around egoless for the rest of your life. It's that in every moment, you have to start again from the beginning, because the, the mind is continually projecting ego. And if you allow your experience of the feminine principle to overwhelm your immediate sense of yourself, then the ego is dissolving in that moment, even as the, other, the next moment is starting to project another idea of ego. 
And so it's just this, and that's the flow, you know, that's the flow of feeling the mind unraveling, but also continuing to do what it does, which is very beautiful, which is sort of project this idea about who you are that helps you organize your experience and relate to other beings. It's totally beautiful. So in this, in the, in this tradition, you're not trying to destroy the ego. You're not trying to slay it or kill it or totally dissolve it. You're just trying to, to, to sort of let it appear and dissolve just as soon as it's appearing so that it's never rigidifying or like crystallizing because it's when it crystallizes around certain ideas and certain perceptions of reality that just starts suffering or making other people suffer (laughs) as you're speaking i can now understand what you talked about richard i'm watching you and i'm like I want what he's having. <laughs> I want what he's feeling. Yeah, exactly. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. It has been like amazing. Sure. And, and, and so spur of the moment. Mm. And um, it's just been um, lovely to sit down with you and beautiful. And it makes me just want to come back. <laughs> and Boulder's not a bad place and to be. And Boulder is not a bad place to be. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen, with Chris Lucas as our editor and producer. And thank you to all our supporting members through Patreon, because without your generosity, this podcast wouldn't exist. If you'd like to help support the show, please visit patreon.com backslash Ashtanga Dispatch. Thanks again, and see you next time.